Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, we realized sometimes you can't go home or back to your childhood again, and that Marilyn Monroe had something in common with both my father and brother. This week, the stories are going to be bittersweet, with a definite lean towards the bitter. There's a saying that goes, you always hurt the ones you love. And this week, we'll see multiple ways how true that can be. But it isn't all doom and gloom for me this week. There's some cuddly kitten love, and a certain New York City baseball team proves for once and for all that they are the champions. But right now, let's set the stage for what's to come with Timmy Thomas and Why Can't We Live Together from 1972.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Why can't we live together? It was a question I'd been asking myself ever since I could remember. And there was still no good answer, at least not on this chilly late autumn afternoon in 1985. And now, Chapter 38 of Fish Out of Agua. Spanish on Sunday, Part 5. Papa de Sofa. Titi Carmen was sick. She had diabetes and had been in and out of hospitals for years. She had just been in again, but had gotten out just in time for Thanksgiving, and we were all at Abuelita's apartment on Amsterdam Avenue. It was a small apartment, and it was crammed when Cousin Evie let me in at two in the afternoon. My mom, Titi Ophelia, Titi Dulce, and my abuelita had all been in the kitchen getting the meal ready to serve, and everyone else, Titi Carmen, my father, my brother Kevin, and cousin Ray Ray, were in the living room. A football game was on the television, and as usual, everyone was talking over it. Abuelita was standing on a ladder, half on the top where you're not supposed to stand, with a curtain panel in her hands and a bunch of hooks sticking out of her mouth. Typically for her, she had decided that she needed to hang some new curtains at that exact minute, and no one and nothing was going to stop her. The toes of one foot were curled around the edge of the top step, while the other foot was poised to join it, while the men lounged unaware on the couch, eight feet below. Now, Abuelita was a multitasker long before it became a catchphrase. And for her to be supervising Thanksgiving dinner, making pot after pot of café, the old-fashioned way with the colarol, and making sure Titi Carmen was comfortable, plus getting together the meal she would later bring to Papa Julio in the nursing home and hanging a new curtain all at the same time was normal for her. I understood this. Like her... I often did this myself, this type of multitasking. But Abuelita was 75 and about to go on the top step of a ladder. Abuelita, what are you doing? I asked, even though it was obvious. The hooks did not prevent, the hooks in her mouth did not prevent Abuelita from cheerfully answering me. Hello, Michel. Ay, nadie ayúdame. Nobody's helping me. But we'll do it, Grandma, Kevin said. Yeah, we'll do it, Ray Ray added. But Kevin and Ray Ray both had their eyes glued to the television screen. I could see my father had dozed off. He always fell asleep on that couch. So I put down my shopping bag with the box of pastries I had brought from the famous Venero's pastry shop in the East Village and my equally famous fresh cranberry orange relish, and Evie and I walked towards the window. As I passed the couch... I playfully nudged Kevin and Ray Ray. Come on, stop being papas de sofas and get up, I said. Titi Ophelia came into the room. A large carving fork was in one of her hands, a cigarette in the other. No one else was allowed to smoke in Abuelita's apartment anymore. I knew why she was getting away with it, but I still didn't think it was right. She had been caught in mid-drag, and expelled a stream of Virginia Slim 100 as she said, What did you say? Dite Dulce followed right behind her, carrying a large caldero full of arroca gandules and put it on the kitchen table. 
which, as always, had been moved into the living room. Kevin and Ray Ray had gotten up and were helping Abuelita climb down as she, of course, simultaneously shooed them both away. Looking at the three of them made me laugh, and I was still chuckling as I said, Papa de sofa, Titi. You know, couch potato. No one was helping Grandma. My mother and cousin Evie brought in the plates of turkey and pernil. My father smelled the food and opened one eye. You can't say that, Ophelia said. There is no such word as papa de sofa. You have to say bago or perezoso. O lento, mija, Titi Carmen added helpfully. But that just means different types of lazy, I said. Papa de sofa is like a couch potato. Like in English, when you say couch potato, you know, when someone just sits on the couch and gets planted there like a vegetable. I didn't like where this, where this was going. I had been in the apartment for less than 10 minutes, and now it looked like something bad was going to happen. Ophelia, Abuelita said. Déjala, Michelle is making chistes, jokes. Déjala, leave her alone. Vamos a comer, let's go eat. Evie went to push Titi Carmen's wheelchair to the table. My mother had gone back into the kitchen. My father opened his other eye and got up to stretch before dinner. But once you gave Titi Ophelia a bone, she just couldn't let it go until there was no meat left. Michelle, you know as well as I do there is no such word. You just can't be making up Spanish. Well, Titi, maybe, maybe there should be, I said in an attempt to pacify her. My mother came back into the living room. A marshmallow and sweet potato casserole was in her hands. Ophelia moved to block her way. You know what the problem is, Lucy? You know what the problem is? My mother calmly put the dish on the table and turned to her sister with a look I hadn't seen on her face in years. And all of a sudden, I felt cold. What, Ophelia? My mother said. Tell me. What is my problem? I don't have a problem. Last year, my daughter graduated college. Next year, my son. Where is your son? All at once, this had become something totally different. No one had even mentioned Cousin Benny's name in almost a year. He's, he, he, he's away. Ophelia started. Ophelia started. You don't know where he is, my mother said. No one knows. He's gone. It was true. That past February, Cousin Benny had left his job at Trinity Cemetery one evening and vanished. No one knew if he was dead or alive. The police had said if he was alive, he had made sure that he would never be found. He had only just turned 21. My mother and Tite Ophelia both started talking at the same time, ignoring Abuelitas, Dulces, and Evie's, Please stop! It's a holiday! Titi Carmen just got out of the hospital! Can't we just forget it and eat? We're a family! We're supposed to be together! Why can't we be together? Kevin and Ray Ray were still standing by the ladder. I could tell they didn't know what to do. 
and I could see Carmen praying silently in her wheelchair not two feet away. I could also hear my mother's breathing quicken, and I knew that she was about to say the one thing that could never be taken back, and I was afraid of what would happen when she did. But before my mother told Ophelia what, if not she, at least certainly I was thinking, that if Ophelia had been my mother, I would have wanted to disappear too, my father stepped in. Lucy? We're leaving. Now. He didn't even say it loud, but it snapped both my mother and Ophelia out of it, even if for just a moment. My father went over to my mother and put his hands on her shoulders. Her face was bright red. I thought she was going to start speaking again, but instead she went into Abuelita's bedroom, got her coat and pocketbook, and left without saying another word. My father looked at Ophelia but said nothing and followed my mother out the door. Kevin went to get his coat, and I just stood there. I hadn't even taken mine off yet. Abuelita and Ophelia went into the kitchen, where, of course, a heated discussion in Spanish had begun. Shards of phrases leapt out at me. ¿Por qué? ¿Por qué hágale siempre? Why do you always? Tú no puedes, can't you ever? Soy tan cansada de... I am so tired. Dite Dulce and Cousin Evie came up to me. Please stay, Evie said. It wasn't you, Dulce said. She was looking for any excuse. It's hard for her, you know. It's hard for everyone, I thought. But I didn't say that. I just said I was sorry. And I left. I did hug my grandmother and everyone. But I needed to see my mother. On the elevator, I almost wished my mother had said the unforgivable. Why not? Everyone else could say it to her. And if she had, I wouldn't have to go to Abuelita's anymore and make excuses about why I never went to visit Papa Julio in the nursing home. At least I'd been spared that today. They were my family, and I loved them all. But sometimes, sometimes I couldn't stand any of them. It was like Captain Kirk had once told Mr. Spock in a Star Trek movie. Sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. My parents and Kevin were still in front of the building. My mother and father walked to the curb. Kevin pulled me aside and said he hoped our mother wouldn't start speeching again and ruin the rest of his weekend because he had to study for finals and he was so, so tired of this. He couldn't wait till he graduated college, got a job, and moved out just like I had, and he told me how, how lucky I was. Meanwhile, my father hailed a cab. Michelle, you coming with us? he asked. No, Daddy, I think I'm going to go back to Pasha's, I said. Okay, we'll call you later. They all got into the taxi. I didn't say goodbye to my mother. I knew she wouldn't have heard me. When I got back to Astoria, the apartment was empty. Pasha had gone to his parents' house. We'd always gone to see both our families and had double Thanksgiving dinners every year since we'd been going out, but this year... For the first time, we both decided to just go to our own families. 
and I was glad that today he hadn't been with mine. But I'd left my shopping bag of pastries and relish on the floor of Abuelita's house, and because it was Thanksgiving and we had anticipated a week's worth of family leftovers, there was almost nothing in the apartment to eat. Of course I could have gone to Jackson Heights to Pasha's parents' apartment, but I didn't no longer wanted human company. I made a cup of tea and walked into the bedroom. Max, our brown tiger kitten, was curled up sleeping in the middle of the bed. When I walked into the room, he picked up his head. I put down the mug, lay down in the bed next to him, and curled up. It was only four o'clock in the afternoon, but I was exhausted, and I didn't care if I ever spoke Spanish ever again. Max purred. The last thought before I fell asleep was that Kevin was wrong. I hadn't really moved out yet. I wasn't really gone. Not at all. In my own way, I was still as trapped as he was. When, when, when was it ever going to be all right? There weren't going to be many more chances left. In the next couple of years, Titi Carmen, Abuelita, and Papa Julio would all be gone. And Cousin Benny would never be found. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Joy Division's She's Lost Control from their 1979 debut album, Unknown Pleasures, behind this story. And now, it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're keeping it real with Storytelling World again, and um, with a woman I want to be whenever I grow up, finally. (laughs) She's a storyteller, a public speaker, an advocate, and an activist whose stories have taken her around the world. And she now has become an educator, so maybe a little of what she knows can rub off on you, too. Take a listen. I'm sitting here with um, someone we, it took us like a minute and a half to figure out when we met. And it was, of course, through the moth, as most mm-hmm. of the storytelling was. And I was actually segueing out of it to write Fish Out of Agua, where she was segueing into it. I think she was working at Hot 97 as a, as a DJ at the time. Not as a DJ. Oh, okay. What were you? I was doing marketing. Oh, marketing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was on the wrong side of Oh, the wrong side. All right. So anyway, she's so glam, and she's fam, and she's famous. Um, she's, she should be famous and I'm sitting here <laughs> with the lovely and amazing and accomplished Dawn Frazier. Hey Michelle. Hi Dawn. What up? what up? Oh my gosh. Just that's a that was a very um very descriptive introduction of like uh of how we segue into this world together, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like looking to see like where are the women of color doing like storytelling and I was so not part of this world going into it that you know like seeing you and like finally meeting you was one of those things where I was like, okay, there are yeah. women who are it, doing this. It, it was me, you, and Daisy. Right. Daisy Rosario. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's crazy. But it, it was good, you know. I mean, I, I, I love the moth. I will, I will love the moth forever because, like, what I have came from there and, like, the friends that I made there, I still have today. Oh, absolutely. And even that confidence, I'm sure, like, of telling a story and, like, making that into a one-woman show and that into a book, it just gets you that experience of actually telling your story and owning it yeah you know but you do a lot with stories yourself so tell us your story Don. 
Oh my gosh. Like I it's, it's it's funny because I don't think that I saw myself as a storyteller for the longest time. Really? No, not at all. I mean So you went to the moth as a participant? I went to the moth because I'm a radio head and I was listening to This American Life. And oh, okay. they had a story, I remember specifically, uh, now I know who it was, but at the time I didn't know who it was, but it was a story about a comedian who had like a sleeping disorder. And oh, Mike Birbiglia. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then at the end of it, I remember it was, it was recorded differently than other like radio productions you hear. Okay. Because, like you hear the audience in the background. You hear right, the right, 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 right. Because it's like live. It's a live event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, and they were like, this was recorded at the moth. And I was like, what is that? That just sounds like a different, fun type of radio. Oh. I didn't know what it was. And so... And it wasn't was, even radio then. It was like live performance. It must have been like a main, a main stage show or something. I think it was like a slam that they had. And oh, wow. they just had invited... Um, they had invited... Well, he had told a story at the slam, which is actually, I think, how he got his start. He told a story, his story at a slam or at a moth event. And then it got turned into his um, one-person show. And his one-person show got, you know... Connected into like his book, right? And, and then, then he just like blew up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and now he has a movie and everything else. So, but before any of that, it was just a great story and a great audience. I was participating in it, and I was like, I want to be able to go check that out. Like, where are these live audiences? And so I went to uh, their website, and I saw that they had like a grand slam, like in a couple of days. I didn't know what a grand slam was. A grand slam is a competition that has the ten uh, best storytellers that won the story slams previously competing for like a title. A title, yeah. yeah. The Grand yeah. Slam champion. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I called up the office. I was like, hey, I've never heard of you guys before, but I just heard a story on This American Life. Y'all have tickets. They're like, well, sold out, but we have some extras. So, you know, what's your name? And I was like, Dawn. And they're like, yeah, come join us. And I was like, oh, great, sweet. So I did. And, um, and I got hooked from there. Um, and yeah, I just started, I just started connecting with people, meeting people like yourself, trying to figure out how to tell a story. Why should I tell a story? What is this? And um, just got hooked little by little. I remember when you did Sherry Weaver's Speakeasy show. Oh my gosh, that was my very first story. Yeah, that was your first. I totally remember that. Sherry Weaver was like the godmother of storytelling, like James Brown is the godfather of soul. <laughs> no, seriously. She's like this older woman, and like she ran this show for like five years, and basically anybody could tell a story. She would say... She would like audition you, but basically the audition was like you would have a glass of wine or a margarita with her, and then she would just like listen to you talk, and she'd be, and she'd book you. And people would had no idea what they were doing, but like so many people got their start from her so because she, like you couldn't just go to the moth and get on and, and and go to a slam if you didn't really know because right. I would say eight times out of ten you would fail miserably. Oh yeah, I mean like the thing is like you don't want to go to a moth. I don't mean and, like, like fail. I don't mean like fail, but like you know what I mean, like not do not do yourself justice. There right. you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. No. And so Sherry's was the perfect place. Yeah. Because like it was like you know a little cafe that she would set up, and so I went and I did my first story, which, which was a story about me killing my best friend Tamster accidentally. Um, That's a funny one. <laughs> giveaway was though was like I didn't know that I was the one who killed it. I thought the hamster had like committed suicide and jumped off of the table. Mm. Anyways, but after telling like that the Blasio dropping the the um the not the werewolf the friggin' brown groundhog groundhog <laughs> werewolf <laughs> the hell it's one thirty in the afternoon people werewolf day yeah you know like we, we celebrate it every year yeah exactly yeah exactly. you know the werewolves yeah, yeah, come yeah, out yeah, and yeah yeah. yeah 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 so um so yeah and so and then after that I just I was working in radio um, I was working for Hot ninety seven and Kiss FM doing marketing and whatnot and. The station that I was working for, like Kiss FM, the primary station I was working for, went under after being 30 years on the air. So I no longer had a job. 
and I no longer had like a purpose because radio was like my purpose at that time. Wow. You know, um, and so I just called up the moth, this place I went to for this slam, and I was like, hey, you know, can I volunteer just to like help you guys out? I have some free time. I just got laid off. It's January. You know, this is like a little bit after the recession, so people's morale was still was coming out of the gutter. This is like what, 2009, 2010? 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so they were like, yeah, we need to be some people to like help out with our coaching. Actually, coaching people how to tell stories. And I said, I don't know how to coach people how to tell stories. And they're like, well, we'll train you. You will, like, it's like a, a train the trainers. Mm. So they trained me how to coach people to tell their stories. And within about like six months, they were like, we want to hire you, but we don't have like a full-time person or people that do this. And so I was like, well, how do I do this? And so I started talking to people like yourself, people who are like actors, people who are performers, who literally have to do part-time jobs. You did? I don't remember you talking to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? It must have been good. <laughs> I mean, I was just trying to get any type of clue for any jobs. I had no idea where to find a job. Yeah. If I wanted oh, to that, that's to, like, like the worst feeling in the world. And New York is not your home. You come from out west. You come from California, like from LA California. area, right? Uh, I went to school at UCLA, but okay. I'm from the Bay Area. Oh, the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you were far from home. Yeah, I was. I was far from home. It was cold as hell out here. You know. Hell yeah. I had no job. Got laid off from the job that I was like totally passionate about. So I was. I was just kind of like a little bit down and out. But actually coaching people and like ha having these high schoolers tell their stories was actually really fun. It was really kind of engaging. And I was, even though like half the time they would be like, some of the students would show drunk. This was first period, by the way. They would show up high. Um, but Sounds like my high school. <laughs> probably was your high school, girl. Was it Lehman? No. Oh, okay. This was in East New York. Oh, okay. Um, but like Daisy's the, high school. <laughs> it's like Daisy's high school. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But by the end of the year, like we would get these calls from students or by the end of like two years, I remember like one student, um, let's call him Barry. Um, Barry calls me on my cell phone and he's like, you might remember me. I was a high school senior a couple years ago. I was in your storytelling class and, you know, I just want to let you know like how much that class like changed my life. I, I, I can totally like tell my story, people understand what, it, what my perspective is, you know, um, and this is, these are like low-income students, you know? And so that's when I started realizing that I'm in a job that is giving people a sense of power. So yeah, I have nice. to find a way to, nice. to do it, you know? Um, and so little by little, I started having like this great job where I felt like I was empowering people. And these other like stupid side gigs that, in my opinion, they were stupid right. side gigs that kind of helped me to pay the bills. Yeah. Until now, it's to the point where I'm coaching people all the time on in terms of telling their stories, coaching people to like deliver speeches, coaching people to just actually find their voice and get up and use it. And she does it internationally, people. Why don't you tell us the countries you've been to? Wow. Girls, speaker, go ahead. As a speaker, as a as coach? Both, as both. Wow. So, I mean, in the past year, let's say in the past three years, um, this year, I'll be going to Kenya um, in a couple of weeks. Didn't you go to Africa with the moth also? Or yeah, that's, the moth? that's with the moth. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to Kenya with the moth. And it's not your first time in Africa? No, I went to South Africa twice, actually, last year. Wow. Um, Did you work with children or seniors or um, adults um, like us, like, yeah. like regular grown-ups? Yeah, HIV, <laughs> regular people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, in, in South Africa, it was an initiative around HIV and AIDS. Wow. So it was like HIV, AIDS advocates. Some of them were actually like people who had it themselves. Some of them were people who have it in their family. Some of them are people who are like out in the field trying to educate others. But all of them were 
or AIDS advocates of some type. Wow. Um, the trip before that, I was in Uganda, um, and that was um, also through the moth. And that was women who are like social justice writers. Mm. So oh, that was the women's trip. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about that. I saw some pictures. Oh my god, that was so amazing. Yeah, yeah. So is that around the time where you started thinking about doing speeches, or were you doing speeches at the same time? What what made you segue from story to speech? Story to speech is what Dawn's doing now. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> we want to hear how she got there first. Um, I started telling my own speeches around the same time that I was doing these other random side gigs. Okay. Because I realized that the random side gigs were not in alignment with what I liked to do. Like, name one of those random side gigs. I had seven of them. You want, I can... Well, just get, tell us the two worst ones. The two worst ones? Yeah. Oh, I, I was working as, um, I was working at a catering company. I knew it! I knew it had to be catering! No, I, Whenever you're at a fancy party and, and, and you're being served by somebody, just know that they hate you and they hate to be there and their brain is someplace else. I had... The truth, girl. Yes. Oh, uh, my God. Yes. I was serving a little bunch of boys at their bar mitzvah at a huge hall in, you know, midtown Manhattan and thinking to myself, oh, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. And here are these, like, teenagers, and I'm serving them lollipops and cakes and things like that. And there was, like, pretty much no respect for any of the, the serving staff, you know. And all the kids were just kind of going crazy. And I realized how many millions of dollars these people were spending on this particular event. And I did not want to be there. Yeah, I hear you. I did not want to be there. I hear you. Um, and that was only one of the jobs that I had that was just not yeah. fun for me. And so, I was, um, and so I was, like, looking for other jobs or other gigs that were related to storytelling, related to advocacy, or related to, you know, getting our voices heard. And I realized that, that telling, that giving speeches would be the perfect way to get on stage, to empower youth, and to actually get paid. And she did it, and she figured it out, and she makes bank from it. And now she has her own um, online course, and it's called Story to Speech. Yep, Story to Speech to which, Sale. Which I, Story to Speech to Sale, which I took this weekend, full disclosure, because I want to make some bank too, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people need to know how to do this. So tell us a little bit about Story to Speech to Sale. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I think about it as, like, you know, first of all, everyone has a story. Everybody has a story. Yes. Right? Everybody has. And some people's stories don't get heard because of the way things are in the world. Sure. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Like the people that with whom you worked in um, South Africa, let's say. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of those people want to be able to, like, help others. Yes. And empower others. And so there are people who, there are specific industries, there are specific people who know how to how to bring those people into, like, to speak to their audiences. Yes. And so my whole plan, my goal is to show people first how to get, how to find the story that can be translated into a speech. Um, because not all stories can be right. translated into a speech. Right. After that, actually figuring out what the message is of your speech, you know, and, like, who needs to hear this message? You know, what transformative steps can you actually give to an audience that is going to, like, let them make some type of change in their own lives or some type of transformation? And then from there, actually figuring out what is the industry so that that speaker can go out and actually make money off of it and not spend time, you know, in the wrong places if they don't, if they don't, if they're really trying to like make this a business, right. then you need to actually like know where to look. So basically what you're doing in a five-week online course is what took you maybe five years to build. It took about three years. Three years before, to build. Yeah, it took about three years. And when I did my TED Talk was kind of when I really started seeing... Um, um, fortunately, like fortunately, like things kind of like turned a little bit because all of right. a sudden 
I started realizing the way that I realized how much money people make in this industry was because an agent had booked me for one of my first real right, like, right, right. gigs. So if I hadn't been booked for that gig, I would have never known how much these universities or colleges or corporations pay. It's called a happy accident. <laughs> it's a very it's, happy it's accident. It's called a happy accident yeah. or it's called meant to be. Yeah. And um, so Dawn also um, produces a really great storytelling show called Barbershop Stories. When yeah. is the next one going to be? Uh, the last Tuesday of March, uh, April. Oh, okay, cool. Where's it going to be? TBD. Ah, we've TBD. Had, we've had a couple of different locations. We've okay, great. We've got barbershop. Right. And, and, I'm going and, to look forward to that. Yeah. So uh, barbershop stories, the stories are actually told in a barbershop, and you can get your hair done. Did. <laughs> you get hooked up. So, Dawn, uh, where can we find your fabulousness next if someone wants to look um, you up? Come definitely check out my website, DawnJFraser.com. Um, definitely check out barbershopstories.com. We're going to be launching that podcast in April. Um, if people want information about classes, communication, storytelling, I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of classes online for 2017. So um, just check out the programs on uh, DawnJFraser.com. Yay, from podcast to podcast. Thanks, Dawn. Thank you, honey. Woo! <laughs> that was Dawn Fraser, everyone. And now, a word from a fellow radio-free Brooklyner. 1967 saw the top 40 debuts of so many great bands like The Doors, Buffalo Springfield, Jefferson Airplane, Procol Harum, The Fifth Dimension, and The Who. Put on your day-glow clothes, hell, paint your room in day-glow, and turn on to the music of 1967 with me, Jim Malone, every Tuesday night, 8 to 10 p.m., on 50 Years Ago This Week on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua. Everyone's an idiot when they're in their 20s. That's my opinion. And it's totally understandable. Maybe I should have said everyone can be an idiot when they're in their 20s. And it's totally understandable. Because even though you're technically an adult, the reality is you're still figuring ish out and not always at an optimum level. Think about it. Most of the times that you get stuff wrong, the big, hard life lessons that you learn when you're young is because, well, it's the first time it happens to you and you have no experience to measure against it. You know, like the first time you have a long-term relationship, the first time you have a major breakup, your first adult friend betrayal, the first time, well, hopefully when you're in your 20s, the first time hopefully someone you love dies, the first time you get fired, the first time you move away from home, the first time you truly understand what boundaries are and why you need to set them. People love to trash the current hit TV series, Girls, and I concur that there are several reasons not to like it, because <clears throat> privilege, but, however, one thing they do get right, and again, this is just my opinion, one thing they do get way right is in the embarrassing, hurtful, misguided, just effed up stuff we do to ourselves and others during that part of our lives when we're trying to figure ish out. And that's one big difference between the 1980s and now. Because back in the 80s, if, or even the 90s, parts of the 90s, if you or anyone you knew said or did anything extremely embarrassing, borderline criminal, or just plain stupid, 
there was a natural limit to the number of people who would find out about it, usually within the constraints of your immediate social circle. Now, passing out drunk in the wrong place, speaking out of turn or out of your ass, or engaging in any sort of risky or impulsive behavior can go viral with just one click, and often does. And just try reasoning with the trolls. I can think of several lives I've heard about over the past few years that were changed forever or ended due to internet infamy and online bullying. And I'm sure that you can, too. But hey, what do I know? I'm just another Puerto Rican who grew up in a top-floor tenement walk-up in the Bronx in the 20th century who did have that entire decade of the 1980s to try to get my ish together. Our next story deals with a lot of that transitional time. So we're going to set a mood again with Public Image Limited and This Is Not A Love Song from 
And now chapter 39 of Fish Out of Agua. Made Kudasai. I was in a room with Pasha, Amy, and Tanya, and we knew it was the end of the world. The lights in the fixture above us started to dim, and we tried to say goodbye to each other, but none of us could speak. The room fell away, and we floated up through the ceiling and could see crowds of people in panic below. As we rose, a flock of white birds, albatrosses I seemed to remember they were called, came to escort us on our way. I was separated from the others, but I wasn't afraid. My escort was with me. I could see what looked like the ocean in the distance, and things that looked like points of light floating towards it. I looked down to see my body, but I couldn't see it. I wondered if light was was, if light was what I had become. But just before we got to the ocean, we passed over one last neighborhood that looked like a huge oil refinery with pipes and tanks and valves and it was all aflame. Among the fires were people suffering and maimed with disfigured melting faces who were also inflamed with hatred and they were trying to pull us down with lassoes made of flaming ropes. A few of the points of light became ensnared and were pulled down to the mob below, but the birds pushed us to fly higher, and we escaped. I could smell the ocean now, and it didn't smell like any ocean I could remember. Its fragrance was sweeter than any perfume, more nutritious than any Thanksgiving dinner, more comforting than sleeping in your own... I woke up. Pasha was sleeping next to me. Our kitten, Max, was curled up on his chest. I had been so happy when Pasha had brought him home. I had forgotten how much I loved cats, and since we never really had any pets when I was growing up, except for two suicidal Woolworths turtles, Max was the kitten I had always wanted, but was never allowed to have. I fed him, brushed him, played with him, and loved it when he curled up next to us to sleep and I could rub my nose in his creamy striped belly. Later that afternoon, I took what I called a kitty nap. I climbed into bed with a cup of Earl Grey tea and looked at the Alianthus tree, the trash tree, and the Long Island Railroad trestle outside the window for a little while. And then I lay down next to Max and listened to him purr. It soothed me. It made me feel safe. It made me feel like I was at home even though I really wasn't. Pasha and I were living together. Well, kind of. He had gotten an apartment in Astoria soon after we had graduated the School of Visual Arts, and we had both gotten jobs, but I had never moved in completely. I would stay there in Astoria four or five days, and though, and then go back home to the Bronx for a day or two, and start the cycle over, over again. It was not an ideal situation, and I don't remember why or how it evolved in that way. But we had become used to it. We had been together now a little over six years. It was a habit. As I stroked Max, I thought about what had happened barely a month before. I had gone into the bedroom to get Max when Pasha and everyone else in the apartment screamed. I ran back into the living room carrying the cat, and everyone screamed again. 
and Max, who didn't like loud noises, squirmed out of my arms and ran back into the bedroom. I sat down wondering what I had missed in the two seconds that Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy had been talking and hoped they'd be an instant replay. We, of course, were watching a Mets game. They were great that year. In fact, they had been great for the last couple of years, but this year, they were in the World Series. The Mets had come a long way from the years when Darlinda and I would climb up one fence onto the top of a phone booth and then up another fence to sneak into Shea Stadium back in the 70s. Pasha's and my entire social life centered around baseball that year. At the beginning of the season, we and our friends Amy and Kevin had put all our money together and bought tickets to 25 home games. That's a lot of baseball. About a game a week, and it wasn't cheap even though most of the seats were in the red nosebleed section where you could yell all you wanted, smoke undisturbed, and drink the six packs of Heineken cans we had frozen and snuck in along with the bags of chips, buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken, or footlong heroes we also sometimes brought. It was easy to do that back then. No one cared what was in your bag. Shea Stadium was one big party that whole spring and summer, with the curly shuffle and We Will Rock You as the soundtrack. Pasha and I had even entered Banner Day that year along with Darlinda, who was now back in New York from the Army. The three of us were total Met maniacs. But baseball was almost the only thing Pasha and I had in common between us now, besides Max. Slowly, Almost imperceptibly, since graduation, our lives had become routine in every way. We had become one of those couples I had sworn not to ever become. Well, you've seen them. They're the ones that sit at brunch or dinner reading or not looking at each other. It didn't help that Amy and Kevin kept talking about how they were thinking of getting engaged or that Pasha's parents had said that they would buy us a co-op on Junction Boulevard if or when we got married. Or we could walk to Shea Stadium from there. But that wasn't a reason to get married. Was it? I was lucky. I hadn't missed the instant replay. It was the famous Game 6 of the 1986 World Series between the Mets and Boston Red Sox, where in the 10th inning, the Mets had rallied after being one out away from losing the entire series. The game had been tied, and Ray Knight was on second base, when on a full count, and after several foul balls, Mookie Wilson hit a dribbler up the first base side that went right through Bill Buckner's legs. The Mets won that game and would go on to win the World Series that following Monday. The moment after Jesse Orozco threw his glove into the air, Astoria exploded as if it was the 4th of July, plus Christmas, plus New Year's Eve, times two. It was better than Greek Easter when there had been a candlelight promenade throughout the neighborhood. Fireworks were shot off, horns were honked, people yelled out the windows, and spontaneous parties erupted in Astoria Park, even though the next day was a work day. It had been an amazing end to what had been an amazing summer, I thought, as Max and I fell asleep. A few weeks later, Pasha woke me up from another kitty nap. Amy and Kevin were at the door with snowflakes clinging to their hair and two bottles of champagne. 
one for them, for they had finally gotten engaged, and one for us, for we were going to be next. We drank them both and went out for more. The next morning, I asked, Pas I asked Pasha, when were we going to get married? He looked at me with sad eyes and said, we weren't. I didn't argue. I knew. I don't even remember crying at the time. I just got out of bed, got dressed, packed up my clothes, and said goodbye to him and Max. And I went back to the Bronx. I had nowhere else to go, and I had never really left anyway. Don't get me wrong, Pasha and I had loved each other. We had been together for almost seven years, but every relationship eventually gets to the point where either you go forward or you break up. We broke up. Soon after Amy and Kevin got married, they moved to San Diego. I wonder if they're still together. When I told my mother what had happened to Pasha and me, she told me the reason why we didn't get married was because I had given him sex. <laughs> I knew better. Pasha had been a very good boyfriend. The reason we broke up was that sex wasn't enough. A couple of days later, it would be 1987. A whole new year. That was We Will Rock You from Queen's 1977 News of the World and Jump in the Saddle, a one-hit wonder band from Chicago with The Curly Shuffle from 1984. And that's our show. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you liked what you've heard today or in a past episode, please consider sponsoring us. Yes, sponsor us. There is a little green button at the bottom of the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com that says Sponsor This Show, a little round green button. Just click on it and let Patreon take care of the rest. You can sponsor this show for as little as $1 per episode. And after today, kids, there are only eight, count them, eight episodes left after this one. That's the cost of one loge or mezzanine reserved seat to see the Mets in Shea Stadium in 1986. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with a couple of songs that, to me, are both bittersweet and lovely and kind of encapsulate how I was feeling at the end of this decade. There's another saying. We opened with a saying, so we're going to close with one. This saying is, when one door closes, another door opens. And as I got a little older, or should I say matured, I realized that, yeah, that is totally true. Except it doesn't feel that way while the door is closing on your foot. This is Maddie Kudasai from King Crimson Discipline in 1981 and Rockwell's Somebody's Watching Me from 1984. See you next week!
Watching me. 